Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, the second chapter. We have successfully completed the first chapter in our study in the Gospel of John, and we are now heading into chapter 2. This morning, we'll be looking at a very familiar story to many of us, Jesus attending the wedding at Cana. And so I want to remind you that it is true that it is the most familiar stories that we must pay the most attention to the text of the Bible. Because so often we know the story, we know what's happening, and we gloss over what God is telling us specifically in His Word. And so this morning we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. If you would listen now to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open your word up to us. That as we hear it, as we read it, as we study it, we would see more and more clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no one like Jesus. He is our great Savior. He is our great hope. So we ask, help us, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to learn from your word and to be changed by it. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have been spending some time now in the Gospel of John, and you will recall that John wrote his Gospel with a purpose. He told us, you will recall, in chapter 20, verse 30, that he wrote this Gospel 
and he told us of all the signs that Jesus had done so that we may believe and that by believing we may have life in Jesus' name. But it is interesting to see what John includes and excludes in his gospel account. He includes often ordinary events and times that are made extraordinary by Jesus. We have one of those here today. We will see how in a typical part of life, Jesus reveals himself as the Lord of creation. And so I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. First, we see the world's need. Second, we see the mercy of Christ. And then third, we see the glory of Christ. The world's need, the mercy of Christ, and the glory of Christ. John begins this chapter by setting the stage for us for uh, the event that is happening. He gives us once again a signal about this first week of public ministry that Jesus is conducting. It occurs right in the very beginning of this chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So what does that mean? On the third day. You will recall that in chapter 1, we saw three next days. And then, of course, there was a day before the first next day, so that gives us four. And when Jesus came to meet Andrew and John, it was four o'clock in the afternoon, and John tells us that they went with Jesus and they stayed with him, implying another day, a fifth day. So now what we have here are three more. But we have to realize that the Jews counted inclusively, but with respect to dates. That's why on Easter we talk about the three days that Jesus was in the grave, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, counting them inclusively to be three. We tend to count exclusively from one day to the next day, not including the bordering days. Why is all of that important? Well, five plus the three inclusively gives us seven. This is the seventh day. And that will be important as we see John continue his parallels here in the gospel to the book of Genesis. Now, this is the seventh day, but it is not necessarily the Sabbath. John is deliberately invoking Genesis. We saw that at the beginning of this book in Verse 1, in the beginning, hearkening back to Genesis 1.1. And then we saw that John wanted to make a connection between creation and Jesus as God, the creator. So now we are reminded of another week, a week of recreation by Jesus as he begins his ministry. Well, John tells us there was a wedding. Now, what could be more normal? What could be more ordinary? This is something that we see all the time. As parents, we plan for weddings. As singles, we hope for a wedding. It, it's a part of life. As a minister of the gospel, it's my privilege to preside over multiple weddings a year. This is exactly what happens. We have children and they grow up and they get married and they have children and those children grow up and they get married. It's a part of everyday life. Here, this particular wedding 
was at Cana in Galilee. And that should remind us of Nathaniel, who was from Cana, we learned in John's Gospel. Cana was a small town a few miles from Nazareth where Jesus lived. Now, notice how John words it at the beginning of this chapter. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, I promise you that there was no intentionality in assigning this text to this date, a date that we speak about mothers. But Jesus' mother gets the first billing here in John chapter 2. You will notice, however, that John never names her in this text or anywhere else in his gospel. It's something that John does even with himself. He doesn't call himself John. He says the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we hear about the mother of Jesus. Now, why was Mary at this wedding? It's very likely that this was, given by proximity and her presence, a wedding of the extended family. Mary very likely was involved in the preparations. We see this because she knows when the wine has run out, even when others do not. And this could be why Jesus was invited and why his disciples were invited along with him. At this point, there are five disciples with Jesus, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. Now, weddings at this time were joyous, elaborate occasions. I know that weddings are enjoyable now in our day, but a wedding is often done in a few hours. In Jesus' day, weddings would go on for a week or even more. There was feasting, drinking, and joy. Now, this is something that you should not miss because you think you know the story. Jesus was there. By his presence, he blessed the institution of marriage. We don't need to wonder what Jesus thinks about marriage. He is there at the wedding, countenancing it, blessing it. And so marriage is not just something that is a contractual agreement that men and women come up with to try to make it easier to get life insurance or to rent a house. No, it was established by the Lord our God and sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ by his presence at this wedding at Cana. Now this may also help us to think about the nature of weddings. When we participate in a wedding, we are giving our blessing. We're giving our approval. And so we need to be careful about what weddings we are involved in. If there are so-called weddings that cut against the command of God and the law of God, we need to be very careful before we countenance them and add our approval. But I want you to also notice something else. Jesus came to the party and he celebrated with them. Jesus was not trying to squelch their joy. No, he was there with them. I think sometimes... Our thought of Jesus as we go especially quickly through the Gospels is that Jesus didn't enjoy life much. That he was on a mission and he went from one place to the other, especially since much of his life was taken up with attacks from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is an occasion where we are reminded that Jesus is joyful 
that Jesus desires us to be joyful. That he comes alongside us at a celebration. But all of this turns ominous in verse 3. John gives us a bare fact. When the wine ran out, that shouldn't happen. How could that have happened? This is a crisis. It's bad enough that Mary comes up to Jesus and she says to him, they have no wine. This should not ever have happened. The planning should have prepared them for this so that it would have been impossible. You know what this is like. You think about planning for events. We do this even when we celebrate here at Christ Church. We enjoy a good celebration. We just celebrated the ordination of Kurt, our newest assistant pastor. Next month, we're going to celebrate the graduation of our high school seniors. And when we do, we feast. Now, what you may not know is how we prepare for that is we take an estimate of how many people we think are going to be there. And then we round that number up. And then I look at the people who are preparing and I say, obtain 10% more food than that. Because we are not going to run out of food. You may have noticed that during these dinners that your pastor is always the last way in line. I'm not the last one in line because I'm afraid of the food. It's because if anyone's going to go without, it's going to be me. I haven't gone without yet. We always have enough. And so this is an embarrassment but it's more than an embarrassment. Because, see, we think about this in terms of an embarrassment. People would whisper about what's going on at the wedding. It would be as if you went to a wedding and were sitting at table number 11. And when everyone else was served their food, someone came up and said, we're sorry, the kitchen has run out of food, table 11 and table 12. Well, here's some mints. That's what you've got for dinner. Now, could you imagine that? Sitting for a half an hour while everyone else ate, wondering, I got an invitation to this wedding. I brought a gift to this wedding. I know the people in this wedding. How come there's no food for me? Now, that kind of a wedding, the bride and the groom could be 86 years old, and there would still be stories about, you remember their wedding? They ran out of food. Now, I want you to imagine that here the situation is even worse. That's because Jesus lived in a time of a shame culture in which if you did something embarrassing, it stuck with you for a long period of time. It had more consequences. We are told by scholars that to run out of wine at a wedding would be to invite legal action. Now you say, why would that be? It's because in Jesus' day, the groom purchased the resources, the food and the wine for the wedding. Now, this is where I am glad for good old American progress. As the father of three men and one daughter, I am very glad that it is not the groom's family that pays for the wedding. I've just got one. But what this meant was, if the groom could not even manage the funds for the wedding feast, how is he supposed to take care of the bride? The bride's father could come up to him and say, you promised me you could take care of my daughter, you could support a family, you don't even have enough to drink here. And there could be legal action. It's bad. So Mary comes to Jesus. Obviously she knows something that the crowd doesn't. 
Perhaps that's because she's in charge of some of the preparations. But don't think that she's expecting a miracle from Jesus. John makes it very clear to us that this is the first sign that Jesus has performed. But she does know that Jesus is trustworthy and that he is reliable. He already has a reputation for that. Is that how you view Jesus? Is he the first one you go to when you have a need? Or do you try everything else you can until it doesn't work out? Then you come to Jesus to solve it. I want you to notice something else that's important here. Those who are most in need are completely unaware of their need. This should be something that should help us as we think through our relationship with Jesus. Mary is obviously concerned, but the ones who have the greatest need, they don't even know about it. The groom and the master of the feast, the ones who are responsible, they have no idea. As far as they are concerned, everything is fine. And this is a reminder to us that often we are the ones who do not understand our own great needs. We're out of our depth. We think we can handle things. We think everything is fine. We think we don't need Jesus or his help or his grace. We're just unaware of our need. Well, the second thing that we see is not just the need of the world, but the mercy of Christ. So Mary comes to Jesus and states to him that they run out of wine. And Jesus' response to Mary is puzzling in verse 4. It's so puzzling that scholars are divided over what it actually means. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now we might ask, is Jesus angry at Mary? Is he being rude to Mary? What's going on here? He addresses her as woman, which is not exactly a term of endearment. I don't advise husbands that when you go home today on Mother's Day, that you say to your wife, hey woman, it's, that's not going to go over well. There's a little bit of free marital counseling. Now, in Jesus' day, this form of address is not rude, because Jesus uses it with other people in normal conversation. That's the way he addresses the woman at the well. <coughs> it's the way he addresses the woman caught in adultery. It's the way he addresses Mary on the cross. When he says, woman, this is your son. And he says to John, this is your mother. So we have this kind of bookmarking, bookending, of Jesus speaking to his mother at the beginning and the end of his ministry, addressing her as woman. So it's not rude. Perhaps some scholars think it has as its roots the promise of Genesis 3.15, in which Jesus excuse me, in which God promises that the seed of the woman will overcome Satan. And it could be that Jesus is highlighting that here, saying that Mary is the woman from whom he is the seed. But it's also just not a usual form of address. It shouldn't normally be qualified with some sort of adjective, dear woman. Now some English translations do that, but it's not in here in the Greek. So maybe perhaps the best way we can understand it is it's Jesus saying something like ma'am. It's respectful, but not exactly endearing. It's not exactly how we normally address our mothers, especially outside the South. 
But then it gets odder. He then says, what does this have to do with me? Now, the Greek is even more stilted and difficult. The Greek literally is something like, what to me and to you? And if you say, well, I wonder what that means, join the club. Because it's not exactly easy to translate. It's often translated as something like, what concern of this is this to me? Or, I know this is important to you, but why should it be important to me? What's involved here, we might say. It's It's a Greek idiom that's hard to translate. So, something is going on here. We know from the scriptures that Jesus does not sin. So he's not sinning here. And yet this doesn't seem like a normal interaction. Again, young people, when you're at home having lunch and your mother says to you, would you please set the table, I do not advise you to say, woman, what does that have to do with me? That is not a place to go. Why is Jesus responding to his mother's concern with almost indifference? The answer comes in his next statement. He says, my hour has not yet come. He's already begun his true purpose. He is indeed the son of Mary, but he is also the son of God on a mission. His purpose was to go to the cross. That was my hour for Jesus. Jesus' agenda is not Mary's agenda. She's focused on a very particular problem, but he will not be constrained by what's going on around him, whether it's good or bad. He stays focused upon the cross and the work of redemption. So right away, we are given an important look into Jesus. Jesus taught, healed, encouraged. But that was not primarily what he did. His primary purpose was to save sinners through his death. Is that how you see Jesus? Because that's the Jesus of the Bible. Focused like a laser beam on the cross. And yet Mary shows us that she knows him. It's hard to imagine Mary's reaction to Jesus' statement. The address is odd. Jesus tells her this is not his focus. He doesn't want to make a display. But Mary goes to the servants in verse 5, and she says, Do whatever he tells you. Now, now I want to say to you, if you are right now today shopping for a life verse, you can't do better than this one. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. That's what Mary tells her. That's how you could live the Christian life. There's no better way to live than doing what Jesus has told you. So this story tells us a bit about Mary also. Mary isn't perfect. She's not an angelic figure. We'll see later in verse 12 that unlike Roman Catholic theology, she has other children. That Jesus went down with his mother and his brothers to Capernaum. She's not just a little bit below Jesus. She's not different than you and me. And this is important for us to see because Mary trusts Jesus. She knows his compassion. She knows he's the one to run to in time of need. She doesn't think she has authority over Jesus. 
No, Mary needs Jesus just like you and I need Jesus. And it's the very first thing she does is she goes to Jesus and then she tells others, Jesus will take care of this. That's who she is. So quietly, Jesus tells the servants in verse 7 to fill the jars with water. Now these jars were purification jars for washing before eating. Now we are used to this because we have thoughts of hygiene in our minds and we always wash our hands before dinner. And that's something every one of us, even the youngest here, listen to mom today, wash your hands before dinner. But we don't do it for ritual purification. God had given those purification laws to the Israelites partly for their own help and health, but mostly to set them apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world wouldn't bother washing before eating. I know that sounds a little bit disgusting. And so what you would need if you were at a wedding and you needed ritual washings, you would need these huge jars filled up with water so everyone could wash their hands. And so John tells us that they had these huge jars, 20 or 30 gallons full. Now, he tells us that detail, I think, for a particular reason. There is no way anyone could have smuggled 30-gallon jugs of water into this wedding without people seeing it. It's just not possible. And so this is no ruse. This is no magician's trick. This is Jesus miraculously transforming water into wine. Now, notice another detail about these jars. There are six of them. Now, in the Bible, numbers have meaning. Three is the number of the Trinity. But seven is the number of completeness. There are seven days of creation. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs that John records. There are the seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation. Seven, is the, the idea is that it is completeness, it is fullness, it is accomplished. And so, by the opposite, six is the number of incompleteness. It's not done, it's not ready. That's why the number of the beast is six, six, six in the book of Revelation. It is a trinity of incompleteness. And so, what John is showing to us here is that the Jewish rituals and ceremonies are incomplete. There's six jars of purification. Now, don't forget that. Because what Jesus will do is he will take these old covenant emblems and he will pour into them new covenant blessing. It's almost as if Jesus takes the mundane and he turns it into blessing and gladness. Have you experienced the blessing of Jesus? Has he taken the crises of your life and brought hope? Has he made ordinary days special? Because that is what Jesus does. Jesus changes everything. Well, the third thing that we see is the glory of Christ. Jesus tells them to draw from the jars and to bring it to the master in verse 8. The master of the feast was the one who was in charge. He's much more than a sommelier. He's not checking the wine for its bouquet. He's the one that if the meal goes awry, 
is on the hook. And so he's completely unaware of the crisis. He's not asking, where did you get this wine from? I've heard we run out. No. He doesn't know where the wine came from. And John tells us that this was real wine. I think this is important for us here today. The Greek word here can mean nothing but wine. This is not the best Welch's grape juice that the world has ever seen. It's not. The word here for wine will not allow anything that alcoholic wine. And the master here talks about wine with its effect that it has on people. He says, normally people bring out the good wine first, and then when people get a little bit tipsy, they bring out the cheapo wine so that they won't notice. But yet we have to understand that the wine of this day was watered down compared to the average Cabernet or Chardonnay that you might find in the grocery store. No, today's wine would be what the Bible refers to as strong drink, and it tells us to be careful with it. This wine would have been watered down with one or two parts water to the part of wine. So, what we have to understand here is that Jesus is involved in bringing wine to this feast. Now, I am not telling you that you have to drink wine to be a Christian. No, you don't. But we have to be careful about calling something a sin that Jesus engaged in. That gives us a much bigger theological problem. Well, the master takes this wine and he is amazed in verse 10. He says, it makes sense to start out with the best and then to bring out the cheap wine. But here, what you brought me is the absolute best. The way he says it gives the implication that this is not just the best wine today. This is the best wine he's ever had. Do you see what's happening here? We could be amazed by what Jesus did. He transformed water into wine. Or we could be amazed by the sheer quantity of it, 180 gallons of wine. But what's most amazing is how good it is. Are you amazed by Jesus? I fear that for many of us, we know that we must come to Jesus. But we expect that to be at the cost of our joy. That we're going to lose something pleasurable, enjoyable, by coming to Jesus. That the Christian life means missing out now for a blessing later. But what we see here is against that. Jesus brings joy right now. This miracle is a sign of the glory of Jesus, but that means more than we think. Jesus' glory is our good. It is our joy. There is nothing so good as being with Jesus. Everything he has is the best. The world wants you to fawn over knock off, broken down junk. It wants you to ignore the steak and eat the dog food. To spread a blanket over the hard ground and not sleep on the best mattress you can get. No. Do not buy the lies of the world. Jesus came to bring joy. John is making that explicit here. The nature of this miracle is important. Wine is a sign of joy in the Bible. 
Jesus did this for a reason, to show us he came to bring joy. But even beyond joy, Jesus shows us that his glory transforms all things. Do you remember how I said to you that this was day seven of the week of Jesus' first public ministry? John is fond of the number seven. There are seven signs in his gospel. There are seven I am statements. It is the number of completeness. And so what this shows us is that Jesus is transforming all of creation. The perfect week of ministry harkens back to the week of creation. And it ends with a marvelous transformation. Jesus has taken the empty rituals of religion and made them joyous and glorious. And he does that with you and with me. The work of Jesus transforms not just creation or water into wine, but it transforms us. We are not yet what we will be, but we shall be what we should be. Jesus' disciples saw that in verse 12. This sign manifested Jesus' glory, and what was the result? The disciples believed in him. And the language is very particular here. They put their trust into him. That's what John says. They would never be the same because of Jesus. This story of the wedding and the crisis it gives gives us a great opportunity to see Jesus. We see Jesus as the one fixed on the cross, ready to pay the price, the great price of our redemption. Without that commitment from our Lord, we would be lost in sin and shame. Jesus came to die on the cross so that you might know forgiveness. You need to see that now. And we also see that with Jesus, the best is yet to come. Jesus shows us his glory, and that glory brings us joy and transformation. The joys of the world will pass away. The party will end. The celebration of earthly delights will not last. But Jesus is forever. His blessings are eternal. He is the one who brings the new wine of joy that is beyond compare and never ends. Let's pray.